Hello everyone, this is Mitchie. Welcome back to the Manic Manor podcast. So, last episode we talked about the effects of the Taku quake and tsunami that ravaged the land of Japan in 2011, causing the multi-reactor meltdown and explosion at the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant. Um, That is widely covered upon, and a lot of people, when they think of the 2011 incident that happened in Japan, they immediately see that plume of smoke and everything that happened from the explosion at Daiichi. But also, Daiichi had a sister plant, Daini, which was located about 12 kilometers or 7 miles away, that also suffered as a result of the quake and tsunami, but not to the quite same level that Daiichi suffered. So today we're going to talk about the sister plant, Fukushima Daini, and the differences between the leaderships of both plant managers here, and kind of how it made or broke what um, the outcome was for these plants, which is actually kind of miraculous and it really astonishes me. Now, naturally, Daini also suffered quite a bit from the quake and tsunami. Serious damage, but not quite to the level that Fukushima Daiichi suffered as we know. Both plants were owned by TEPCO, and of course, both of them, immediately following the quake and tsunami, had to spring into action, both trying so hard to prevent a nuclear meltdown. Now, I read the book uh, Station Blackout, and Chuck Casto, uh, he talked about his experiences seeing both forms of leadership at Daiichi and Daini. And he looked at both of the superintendents, you know, uh, Masao Yoshida, who was at Daiichi, and the one at Daini, Nahiro Masuda, and commented on how both of them worked so tirelessly to save their plants. And... Despite them both being really, really good leaders, their leaderships still differed in substantial ways. Now, Fukushima Prefecture had obviously been devastated. It was one of the prefectures that got the worst damage from the quake. Um, You know, fires, floods, and of course, the threat of radiation fallout. But the big difference in the leaderships between Yoshida and Masuda boiled down really to the communications that they had to do with TEPCO. Now Yoshida, we saw, he was in the emergency resource center, a room that had no windows. He was really cut off from the entire situation when he had to talk to TEPCO about everything that was going on. And TEPCO, of course, was on his ass, wanting to know update after update after update. So he put his trust into his plant workers because he knew that they could handle everything and trusted that they would be able to take care of these growing problems. But this unfortunately made for an organization hell for Yoshida because he couldn't see what was going on and he had to solely rely on trust in his workers. But now we're going to look at Daini. Now Daini, like I said, still had extremely severe damage too but it was not to the same extent as what we saw at Daiichi because they still had um, a little bit of electrical power and they were able to monitor the situation in their reactors because of that, whereas Daiichi, they had nothing. They were just flying in the dark. Now, the motive for Superintendent Masuda was to keep 
motivation and a sense of calm until they could complete a physical goal of cold shutdown. And this was still difficult. I mean, the workers were working through 20 plus hour work days and of course dangerous working conditions because of the effects of the quake and tsunami. But they, he wanted to keep the workers' spirits up to keep the stress level down because if they were more stressed out, naturally it was going to make for a harder working area. So even so, Masuda's providing of information was the key to keeping these anxiety levels as low as possible. And when I say providing information, he was just upfront, blunt, honest. So the more he conveyed that even if he didn't understand what was going on, that he was letting them know exactly everything that he could understand. And this made for a secure form of trust and the team being able to understand to a certain extent what was happening, they were put greater at ease. They felt like they understood everything, they knew what had to be done, and it was a key factor to ensuring their protection, their safety, and efficient working. Now, of course, when the tsunami hit, we know that the walls were not high enough to withstand the waves. The sea walls that they built were extremely short of what this tsunami wave was, reaching over 100 feet alone in areas, and um, Daiichi and Daini received waves of about 50 feet, which was easily, you know, three times the level of what the wall was designed to do. And of course, we know TEPCO was made aware of this situation, but they stood by the claim that they were still, quote-unquote, investigating the matter when the tsunami hit. Now, floodwaters damaged crucial parts of the second step in the cooling reactors or the heat exchangers and caused a lot of issues. But Masuda and his operation manager, Mishima Takaki, knew that things were bad immediately, especially the moment that the power went out. It's noted that when the floodwaters rushed in, the plant that they had was left with one diesel generator left, which was referring back to me saying that they still did have some sort of power and they also had a power line that was still intact and this was a crucial part in why Daini did not suffer a similar fate as Daiichi did. It would be this one singular power line that was the quote-unquote literal lifeline to supply electricity that was needed to the control rooms and the emergency rooms to operate and monitor the levels of pressure and temperature within these reactors while also making sure that the water levels stayed where they needed to. But even with that singular power line, three out of four of the reactors that was at Daini still lacked proper power and couldn't run critical parts of their cooling. And this is when the leadership of Masuda and his critical thinking stills uh, skills came into play and kicked in. You know, he still had his workers trying to recuperate and having shock from everything that had literally happened just moments prior. And for this to be like a once in a lifetime, quite literally, issue, it's not like they were necessarily prepared for this. They didn't expect it, but he knew that they were going to have to pull themselves together and they were going to have to connect the reactors to the sole surviving power source that they had. And this would be very difficult. You know, they were still dealing with hundreds of aftershocks 
And, of course, they were also worried because of these aftershocks that it could potentially trigger another tsunami. But even so, something about Daini was that while initially it may have been a slow start and a bit difficult to pull themselves together, they had immense trust in their leader. And Masuda was somebody who knew the plant and knew it very well, so he knew exactly what needed to be done. And that's part of what gained so much trust and why people had such, you know, faithfulness in him through this entire situation. But even with all of his knowledge, Masuda still acknowledged how things were still horrifying and acknowledged the reality of everything and the possibility of what could be. So in the control room of Daini, Masuda had a whiteboard set up where he would put down all the information that they had on hand, including the magnitude of the earthquake, times everything happened when the waters rushed in, and he also made sure that people were on guard duty, essentially, to warn if there was another potential tsunami or anything else that may be catastrophic. It was this way he used to make sure people stayed informed about everything that was happening, and he turned what could have been just complete uncertainty and a bunch of miscommunication and chaos into hope and motivation. Which is a bit different from Daiichi. Now, Daiichi and Yoshida, it was completely different as the fact that they were unable to properly see what was going on and what was happening, and they were far away from where all the issues were really happening and, and unfolding. So they weren't able to properly tell what was going on, especially like when the first explosion went off. There was a whole bunch of confusion. People didn't know if it was another earthquake or what it could be. And that was completely different from what we see here at Daini. Now Masuda simply stated that he had to have his workers convinced and calm, even if he didn't really believe it himself in that moment. So he waited and he wrote. He didn't make humongous and outlandish commands telling people what they had to do to, you know, cause this great sense of urgency because he didn't want everybody to be so caught in emotions that it blinded them from their goal. So the motivation in the Daini workers delegated into what needed to be done to the very last reactor cooldown, including laying down the cables to connect everything to the one power source that they did have. And with this, by March 13th of 2011, before midnight, workers at Daini had placed about 9 kilometers or 5 miles worth of cables down to get the reactors hooked up properly. And this was just in the nick of time as well for Unit 1 because only two hours before Unit 1 would have exceeded its maximum pressure threshold was when they had it back online and cooling. And by 7 a.m., Unit 2 was finally cooling, and by 4 p.m., Unit 4 was cooling. Now, while Daiichi was dealing with its third explosion on the morning of March 15th, Daini had managed to save all four reactors and begin the process of a cold shutdown. But Daiichi had a greater physical damage, for sure, including the complete power loss. Now, comparing the situations between both plants, 
Daiichi at one point had only roughly about 69 workers at any given time with 50 actually doing work. They would rotate out so people could get as much rest as they possibly could. And this was the group that came to be known as the Fukushima 50. But Daini still had roughly about 400 workers. So they definitely had a way better advantage at protecting their plant than Daiichi ever really did. But it doesn't mitigate what went down at Daini though. They still experienced the quake and the tsunami and the worry of having a nuclear meltdown at their plant as well. Daini as well as Daiichi had to order cables, motors, trucks, all that you could think of in an attempt to restore power. They needed backup as well. Decisions of difficult magnitudes had to be made and like where to start or which reactors needed to be cooled in the process first. One of the reactors was still being cooled and it was a tough choice on whether or not to share that power supply initially at Daini, which in turn they voted against because they didn't want to overwhelm the already overworked system. So they had just as many difficult decisions as Daiichi did. Now, Masuda is credited for his employment of what people call sense-making, which is a process of talking through situations to promote clarity and problem-solving. And that's what he did from start to finish. And it managed to help the plant in the long run, especially since Masuda made sure people at the plant repeated everything that he had said to them just to ensure everyone was in fact on the same page. He was also credited for having a familiarity with the staff he knew them personally, and he knew that these people had confidence and they knew what to do with certain things and what they were capable of handling. So with these actions, he was able to spare the sister plant, Daini, and today he is the head of Japan's Nuclear Fuel Unlimited. But as for the Daini plant itself, in 2019, the decision was made by TEPCO to begin decommissioning the plant based on the wishes of local residents and, of course, judging the impact that it would have on their business. But usually, this is a process that does take roughly 30 to 40 years to complete. But that is all the information that I have currently for the Daini plant. So I thank you guys so much for listening in. If you have any additional commentary that you would like to put down for what happened at Fukushima Daini and Daiichi, please feel free to let me know. Um, you can email me at manicmanorpodcast at gmail.com. You can reach out on Facebook or Instagram. And of course, you can comment on YouTube as well. So in the next episode, we will talk about the effects that the nuclear fallout from Daiichi and the effects of the earthquake and tsunami had on civilians as a whole. So I hope you guys enjoyed this episode, and as always, I will see you in the next one.